I rise uh, uh, to solemnly inform the House in the presence of family and our military chiefs that the 100th Victoria Cross has been awarded to an Australian. Uh, this award is to the late Corporal Cameron Baird, already an iconic figure in our army who had earlier received the Medal of Gallantry. As the citation reads, his Victoria Cross is for most conspicuous acts of valour, extreme devotion to duty, and ultimate self-sacrifice at Gorchak village in Uruzgan province, Afghanistan, as a commando team leader. He was on his fifth special forces tour when he was killed in the action for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. On the 22nd of June last year, in the first phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird and his team came under heavy fire on three separate occasions from well-prepared enemy positions. In the initial encounter, six enemy combatants were killed and weapons caches were captured. In subsequent encounters, Corporal Baird charged enemy positions and neutralised them with grenade and rifle fire. By drawing fire on himself repeatedly, he enabled other members of his team to regain the initiative. In the second phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird then led an assault on an enemy-held compound. On three separate occasions, under heavy fire, he forced the door of a building. Twice he was forced to withdraw, to reload and then to clear his rifle. For the third time he entered the building, again drawing fire away from his comrades who were able to secure the objective. Tragically, he was killed in this final assault. Madam Speaker, words can hardly do justice to the chaos, confusion and courage that were evident that day. The comrade who was with him testifies. I have witnessed many acts of leadership and courage under enemy fire during my operational service. Corporal Baird's initiative, fearless tenacity and dedication to duty in the face of the enemy were exemplary and an absolute inspiration to the entire team. I was witness to the ultimate sacrifice. Madam Speaker, I salute Corporal Cameron Baird, VCMG. We all salute him and his almost equally remarkable comrades. In this place, we don't face danger. So we can hardly claim him as our brother, but we do acclaim him as our hero. We can hardly imagine what the likes of Corporal Baird and his comrades go through but we stand in awe of their extraordinary courage, the extraordinary courage of these amazing men who serve our country and keep us safe.
to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I'm on with my co-host, Chantel Taylor, a British Army combat medic and uh, author of the book, Battle One. Chantel, what's up? Hey, how's it going, John? Good, good. It's going good. Uh, we have a guest on with us, uh, a gentleman by the name of Jason Fowler, and Jason is a former Australian Special Forces operator. Jason, what's up, brother? Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, what's up? All right, so Jason, um, you served for a number of years in the Australian Army. Um, was all of that with Special Forces? Yeah, for the most part. You know, when uh, when I joined uh, the Army at the uh, ripe old age of 20, I came in off the street in a sort of direct entry program into Commandos. Um, commandos was only a reserve uh, part-time element at that time before they went full-time uh, a couple of years later. Uh, but, yeah, I pretty much came off the street directly into commandos and then served for uh, my first six years of service with uh, with that unit before slipping across there on selection to SAS. And you're, when you say commandos, you're referring to two commandos, right? Yeah, so uh, the Australian Special Operations Command is made up of a couple of different units now. Um, originally, it was one commando uh, regiment. And then when they stood up the full-time commandos, uh, they basically retrofitted a, an existing battalion, which was uh, 4th Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment, and they made that a commando company, which then turned into a regiment, and they ended up renaming it as uh, two commando regiments. So we've got one commando regiment and two commando regiment now. One commando regiment uh, is split between Melbourne and Sydney, with uh, one company in Sydney and two company in Melbourne, and then uh, basically the, uh, the the full-time equivalent to, to those, uh, those two units is... Uh, two Commando Regiment, which resides at Holsworthy in Sydney. Okay, awesome. So you served, what, half of your time in the Army in the Commandos, and then you went on to uh, the SAS? Yeah, that's right. So I did about 12 years uh, total within the command, uh, six of those at Commandos, and then six across at SAS. Okay, so the, the SAS, uh, you know, obviously the British SAS kind of, I mean, different uh, militaries, Western militaries had their special operations units, and but I believe the, the SAS kind of coined the counterterrorism uh, kind of term and, and as far as, you know, tactics and procedures go, and they were, the British SAS were responsible for a lot of uh, Western militaries to kind of form these counterterrorism units, including the United States uh, and Australia. And so you guys are the, Special Air Service Regiment, SASR, right? Correct, 1st Special Air Service Regiment. So as opposed to uh, you know the New Zealand SAS uh, Regiment, you've also got you know, 22 SAS over in the UK. Um, as, you, as you just alluded to uh, in, in, in that part there, you know, pretty much the world took the lead from uh, UK soft at the time and, and SAS with regard to the counterterrorism role, you know, especially after Princess Gate in, in the early 80s or 1980. You know, which was pretty much the first documented counterterrorism uh, raid that went off successfully uh, in downtown London. Right. You know, since then everyone sort of pretty much sat up and, and listened to what was going on there. And you know, there was efforts to stand up uh, CT units in other uh, you know, partnering uh, countries. You know, UK, or sorry, Australia in the US, you know, where Delta was set up uh, and SAS in Australia was set up. You know, in the mid 50s. Yeah, and, and I mean that that incident you just spoke of, Jason. That was that was so so much in the public eye, wasn't it? It was exactly. like the, the mean, world was, was all, watching. Yeah, exactly. It was all uh, all captured on film, and uh, yeah. and what a stunning success. And uh, and I'm sure there was a 
a fair bit of money that poured into the unit after that successful race. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And do you know, there's a film coming out this year. It's a, I think it's a remake of the um, the Who Dares Wins film, but it's it looks pretty good. I, I saw yeah. a clip, you know, um, a couple of weeks back. It looks pretty oh, yeah. cool. Yeah, I was hoping that they'd remake that because it was one of my favourite movies. Yeah. yeah, I think I saw uh, like a trailer for that on Facebook, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's loosely, uh, not, I wouldn't say it's based on the Iranian embassy siege or, or raid or anything like that, but it has elements that, you know, it looks kind of similar to it. But yeah, it's a pretty cool movie for that, that time period. Yeah. <laughs> and then back to the, the commanders then, because I know that they're, uh, just because I'd, I'd worked with a, a fair few from um, both the sort of the unit that they came from and then the unit that they went to, their role changed slightly, didn't it? So they've kind of, they've really grown the commander units now. Yeah, look, the Australian government uh, had a look at, you know, where its resources, uh, you know, were being held or situated and the amount of money that sort of, um, you know, gets pushed into the counterterrorism role within Australia. And obviously, you know, it's the last resort in terms of the resolution of any terrorist event uh, within Australia. There's no passe comitatus in Australia like there is in the US, which sort of prevents US military from working domestically. So just like uh, you know, the UK, we have a domestic responsibility to counter-terrorism, uh, and it doesn't always get exercised uh, that often, uh, although it has been more active uh, over the last few years than it ever has been, um, especially with the global war on terrorism. Uh, but, you know, the response times, um, you know, there was, there, was, there was so much... So I'm sure that there was uh, a lot of decision-making at the Australian government with regards to, you know, response times to a terrorist incident and, uh, you know, what capability existed and where. Um, you know, SAS resides on the west coast of Australia, um, which is sort of like positioning, uh, say, Delta uh, or FBI HRT, you know, all the way across into California, where they might have to respond, you know, in Washington, D.C. or east coast in a timely fashion, you know, it just takes a long time to mobilise and get across yeah. and cover that ground. So um, they, they stood commandos up with a, a CT responsibility where they had a, a company of commandos provide a CT response um, you know, on, on East Coast. And that, was, that sort of slowly transitioned into a, a full-time capability and rotational capability within commandos. And it slowly sort of weaned that responsibility off uh, SAS, although... Both units still maintain a counterterrorism response, but it allows uh, SAS to refocus on other tasks that are sort of more pressing or at hand. Yeah, and, and both units, I mean, I, just, I know this from experience, have both been extremely active in Afghanistan too, haven't they? Yeah, exactly. It's been fantastic for both units to, uh, you know, to be seasoned and blooded the way that we always yeah. wanted to be. You know, our last major campaign, uh, campaign before uh, before the wars was realistically Vietnam, where, you know, large scales of Australians had been involved in warfare uh, with fairly low-level conflicts in East Timor, you know, Af uh, Rwanda, Somalia. But, uh, you know, once Afghanistan rolled around, that was the next major commitment from the Australian government. Yeah, and um, and the SAS was, st was around during Vietnam as well, right? Uh, in fact, uh, my, my squadron and, and troop um, just happens to be like the, the troop that, or the squadron that, that goes places first, and it's not by, by, uh, by design by any, by any means, but I want to say uh, uh, one squadron rolled into uh, Vietnam first, and we rolled into Afghanistan and, and into Iraq as well first, which obviously I wasn't there for Vietnam, but I was there for both Afghan and Iraq, which was kind of cool. 
Yeah, and yeah. um, so the the domestic counterterrorism responsibilities, uh, those are known as the tactical assault groups, right? Yeah, that that had been a long sort of standing term. Uh, used their tag, uh, the tag or tactical assault group tag East, tag West, then became a sort of a flavour of, you know, commandos would tag East and we would tag West and and so on. But yeah, um, that's that's pretty much how it goes. Do you, it's, it's almost like if if you look at the way things are have happened, you know, you, from the times of, you know, the the sort of great wars. An awful lot's happened and, and, and developed in a short space of time, really. Although the, that last, like you say, the, the major thing that you'd that you guys had fought in was Vietnam. But look at the the way that people have sort of progressed so quickly. You know, with these um, with modern yeah. warfare now. You know, it's it's gone. And it, and I, I talk from like a medical perspective. For us, for sure. You know, from the the um, Somalian um, the mini conflict they had there. But we've we've all seemed to come on sort of leaps and bounds. It's crazy, yeah, I agree. isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, obviously with a more technological advanced sort of style of warfare, it lends itself well to the special operations personnel and soldiers on the ground, um, where, you know, these they're, they're, they used to be the, the, the forgotten sort of, you know, uh, units, you know, they were the ones that were wanted to be disbanded. Um, but now they're sort of the force of choice, essentially, to be put into these situations first. Yeah, um, and yeah. they tend to be extremely busy. And then, you know, that's you, you do get... I hate to say it, but you get these um, these situations where people get a little bit burnt out because they're constantly away. You know, the, the, I know guys from our side of the side of the water that are just constantly deployed. You know, they kind of their breaks minimal. I think that's true everywhere. You know, um, yeah. When we when we sort of look at the you know, the, the, the the big sort of five nations of Australia, UK, Canada, yeah. New Zealand, and and the US, you know, we're looking at you know a, a lot of guys doing a lot of work in a lot of areas, and uh, yeah. you know, they're they're constantly deployed. A lot of strain on the family back home. Um, you know, some guys are doing like up seventeen rotations. You know, into it's crazy, isn't it? Whatever else. So, you know, it's um, there's a lot of pressure on guys to, to to pull the pin and get out. You know, from the family side, and they're seeing their their mates being shot or killed or injured. You know, over there, it's uh, you know it starts to, to take its toll emotionally as as well as physically. Yeah, and and like and for you as well, Jason. What what was your sort of turning point for deciding? Because you'd served for a, a healthy length of time. You know, what did when did you sort of think? You know, this is yeah, you my know, time to I, go. I kind of always you always sort of have second guesses of, of the decisions that you make in in life. And uh, you know, at the time, two thousand five, uh, two thousand six was a was a bit of a a time where we started losing some some guys to the contracting scene. The Australian government had withdrawn from the campaigns, and you know we all we all wanted to be back over there fighting. Um, yeah. And so we were put back on a training cycle. Uh, guys were getting out, so we lost a, a bit of corporate knowledge from the unit. Um, and I, I think you know there was guys that just sort of felt disheartened that we weren't going to go back to the war when we saw you know uh, UK and US special operations guys still over there. Uh, and so it was a decision-making point, I think, for a couple of guys to, to want to get out, you know, sort of based on the, the geopolitical sort of yeah. situation. Uh, and that was maybe my decision-making point. You know, I sort of got fed up with the whole politics of it and thought I'd try my hand somewhere else. But, it, you know, especially, and that, that's what you've trained for, you know, and, and I could understand that, that your um, your mindset at that time to be sort of, you know, to, to watch others doing what you'd just been doing is a bit would be a bit disheartening, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. You know, 
we're bred to fight at that point. You know, you're, you're trained yeah. and, and, and bred to be over there doing your job. And I always say this to people that don't really understand. You know, you could go through medical school, kind of like, uh, you know, a, a university student graduating from med school, uh, one of the best schools or something like that, and, uh, and never getting to practice medicine at the other side of it. So, you know, uh, guys at the units uh, are looking to get away and get away on operations and, and prove themselves and prove their medal on the battlefield, you know, get after it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Jason, uh, would you be able to share a story with the audience uh, from a deployment, maybe a time that you were overseas, um, and and just kind of give them a an idea of what it's like uh, for you guys? Yeah, sure. Um, so a couple of, I guess, a couple of major incidents um, that have been pretty well catalogued. Uh, the Australian Special Operations Task Group uh, rolled out. Um, after 9/11, you know, we were we got the uh, the word that we were going to uh, deploy around about October, uh, like the next month. Australia committed basically to the to the war uh, in Afghanistan, and uh, we found ourselves out there on the ground uh, the next month after that. I want to say it was late October, sorry, late November. Um, so we we rolled into uh, default operating base Rhino, and then sort of you know, did the progression out from from there to Kandahar, Bagram, and so on. Um, and look, the, the major, the major things that uh, that we got up to out there, uh, again, that have been documented, is uh, predominantly uh, uh, reconnaissance and surveillance was our major task. Basically, reporting on Taliban or Al Qaeda positions, uh, habits, intentions, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, if uh, if if it required us to do anything further, then potentially prosecute targets and conduct DAs and, and whatnot. Um, you know, we had. Uh, uh, we had a, a large area of operation out there that we were looking after, uh, which was that sort of southwestern sort of part of, of Afghanistan, across the Helmand Valley, you know, predominantly across across that area. Um, we had uh, we had an incident where uh, one of our vehicles uh, struck a an anti tank mine. We're running soft skin cars, as pretty much everyone was at the time, and uh, our uh, patrol commander. Uh, from one of the other uh, one of the other troops, we were actually uh, in what in one of our cars a little bit further out, and you know we saw a flare go off, and we knew that there was something going on. We didn't have comms with it at that point, but uh, one of our cars had actually struck an anti tank mine. Um, he was in a in a bit of a bad way, bleeding out there, and uh, a couple of other guys that were involved on on the car there in a bit of a minefield situation where you know, they were prodding out there trying to get secure and recovering equipment and guns and medic trying to treat. Uh, Andy, uh, Sergeant Russell, Andy Russell at the time, um, uh, who, uh, again, he'd lost a lot of blood. Um, it was semi-sort of stabilised at that point where we sort of set up a perimeter there and uh, you know, made sure we had a, a, de- a defensive situation going and uh, we ended up calling uh, some US assets in for a uh, medevac, uh, which we ended up having a couple of PJs jump in from a fixed wing uh, because it was you know, designated as a minefield at that time, we just didn't understand, you know, what was going on. If it was one mine or in a minefield, whatever it was, because we were constantly in and out of minefields there in Afghanistan. And uh, so we had two PJs jump in, you know, and that was at uh, under the cover of darkness. They they did an excellent job. Came in, uh, basically wrapped Andy up, took over from our patrol medic, and uh, they ended up bringing a, a rotary wing asset in to to get him out. Uh, unfortunately, Andy died on route back to. Uh, the the hospital, but um, you know those those guys did 
the best they possibly could to PJs, you know, to, to try and yeah. save Andy, uh, get him back out there. But that was our first casualty of of, uh, of that campaign, actually, when Andy was killed. Um, but that was a fairly significant event. Uh, you know, we repostured after that and uh, took it in our stride and you know, made sure we, we sort of dished, dished back what what was what we sort of got there after that and. Our next major operation after that was up in uh, Bagram, which was Operation Anaconda, uh, which has been pretty well documented over, uh, or in, certainly in U.S. history books. But right. um, we were the we were the SAS patrol up on the up on the mountain. There, we were inserted uh, into a into a location where we got a call that a U.S. helo had been shot down. Um, that personnel were on the ground or injured. Uh, there was a special operations component to that, a U.S. special operations component that were uh, uh, in a break contact or contact situation where we, we had to reposition ourselves and get eyes on the crash site and provide uh, situational awareness, uh, reconnaissance, surveillance and interdiction of enemy forces uh, in order to extract those personnel and secure that crash site, uh, which then there was a long, arduous uh, march you know, in full kit at that point because we were set up for an OP and it was, a, you know, move positions to a new feature and we we're about 10,000 feet in the in the mountain. So it was down a down a feature into a valley, across the valley and then up another feature where, uh, you know, we had some, some almost medical incidents with uh, with one of our attachments, US attachments. One of our controllers was in a, in a bad way. He'd never been out on an SAS patrol, that's for sure. And, uh, you know, we were get, getting after it on, on ground and, and doing what we do well, which is covering long distances with large loads really quickly. And uh, he sort of found his breaking point pretty pretty early on, on the climb up the mountain to the uh, to the new OP site. And uh, uh, me and another medic, we ended up uh, you know, stripping him stripping him down and disseminating his equipment and getting him up as best we could to the top of the feature because he had to get on comms and get air and uh, you know, start talking to aircraft to, to bring in some support and whatever else. So... Uh, once we got him up on top, we put a couple of bags of fluid into him and he ended up coming good and got him on comms and started bringing in aircraft and identifying enemy positions and so on and so forth. And that was uh, Operation Anaconda as it started to ensue, um, where we were up on that feature for several days at that point uh, with pre-designated targets. We had B-52s coming in fast air, JDAMs all over the place. We were calling it Predators Hot. Uh, AC-130s were coming in stacked up. We had four or five at a time coming in every night. They were full. We'd send them back Winchester after you know, a series of pre-designated targets and so on. Uh, so it was, it was quite, a, quite an interesting battle up there. Uh, it was funny. I remember uh, you know, we asked for a, a, a BDA off one of the pre-designated targets that, that we'd identified and dropped on and came back from uh, uh, the AC-130s in his American voice, he's like, "Well, I'm following a, a, a I'm following a trail of cold, dead bodies." <laughs> so uh, it was a fairly successful run, apparently. Um, that was his BDA. Like, yep, we're good to go. So, um, yeah, and Anaconda. Uh, I've since reconnected with some of the uh, the U.S. Navy assets that were up on the up on the feature there over here in my time in, in the states, and you know, we we sort of. Just let, let each other know that you know we're, we're up there at that time, and uh, it was a bit of an interesting uh, sort of reunion, as it was, which, yeah. which was kind of nice. And do you but, did uh, you find like um like for all even with all that sort of 
the training, the, the high-end stuff that you guys do, like from that initial incident where you spoke, where you, you lost your one of your um, one of your guys, one of your team guys, that the uh, there was a lot of issues with legacy minds. You know that that before you even sort of come into any sort of contact with enemy um, troops, you've yeah, you've all you've got that to, especially in the places that we decided to go to. You know, Afghanistan one being one of the worst for it. The, the legacy minefields left were ridiculous. Yeah, and look, it was very confusing when we were out there conducting vehicle patrols. Um, yeah, for sure. You know, it was the catalyst essentially for an up-armoured kit on the on the soft skin cars to prevent, you know, uh, underbelly bombs and and, yeah. and mines from being so destructive. Um, you know, we had an enhanced survivability kit on the cars. Uh, we were in and out of minefields. The minefields weren't readily identified. Sometimes we were like, "Is this? Are we on the correct side of this minefield? Are those rocks yeah. red or white? You know, what's the deal?" Uh, we'd had a couple of different incidents of mines. Um, we had a, a, another incident of a, uh, one, where one of the, the boys had stepped on a, a mine and I was the medic that was basically in, in charge of, of sorting that out where he stepped on an anti-personnel mine and uh, you know, we ended up getting a, a medevac for him, uh, taking him out, uh, which was pretty ordinary. And, and that's a, another thing that we discussed like offline there was that basically now, be, and I, I talk about it because it's, it's not dissimilar to the size of the, the military that I'm from, is that people tend to have to, you know, do more than just their own job, you know. So you, so you for instance, you're, you're a shooter, but then you're also the team medic, you know. Yeah, that's right. How, how did that? Yeah, and, and what? How did that work? So you went in and did you just decide that? Did you have a passion for combat medicine, or you know, was that your? Well, you know, the way the the way the unit sort of set up, which, you know, we're not necessarily going to divulge all of its secrets or anything yeah. like that by any means, but, um, you know, we have a lot of redundancy when it comes to skill set, uh, where we make sure that there's enough medics, there's enough commo guys, there's enough, uh, you know, other, other skills sort of shared yeah. around that if, if something happens to the primary medic, there's always another medic within the team that can take over, grab his med kit and, and roll. Same yeah. with the commo guy. Commo guy gets shot. We've got another commo, commo guy in the patrol who's ready to pick up and, and go. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's pretty unique within, I think, special operations that we are as diversely trained as, as we are and as highly skilled as we are at the same time. Yeah, because it's a lot. I mean, if you, think about, if you think about all of that information, that's actually an, an awful lot to not just to take in but then to sort of master. That's... Some go, no, isn't it? Right. You wouldn't just, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really realistically see that in a university degree if you think about no, the amount right. of. That's what I mean. We're yeah. constantly training. Uh, if we're not on deployment, we're back on a on a training cycle. If we're not on counterterrorism duties, uh, everything's training. Everything's re-upping skills. You know, as a medic, we're down at the uh, the local hospitals um, yeah. in the in the emergency rooms. You know, practicing medicine. All all of the stuff that. Yeah, you know, we need to do to to stay current is what we is what we do, and it's a, a lot of workload, um, but it's certainly rewarding at the same time. Yeah, and definitely. That, and that kind of goes into you know part of the the selection process of, of selecting uh, an SAS uh, operator is you know they've got to be trainable. Um, you know they've they've got to have that ability to you know selection's not about not about selecting. Uh, a, a trooper for the unit to, to determine whether or not this person is trainable as a trooper within the unit. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you know, we've got to have that trainability and you know the adaptability, toughness, you know, teamwork, all those kinds of attributes that we're looking for on selection. You know, need to need to be put into play after selection, and that's what you're there to do. Yeah, and, and just to add, just to add to that, you know, you've got you've got quite a fair number of VC wins now. 
Yeah, exactly, you know, the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, which is yeah, away now, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's really, it's good to see, I think it's good to, you know, that I've seen uh, a picture of one of the guys on a stamp and I thought that that was really cool. You know, that's kind of, I think yeah, that well, you people that obviously really appreciate their military, that's not a bad thing. The, the battle honours and awards that have been given out have been, you know, deserved. You know, Australia, yeah. Australians as a whole are extremely humble. No one ever yeah. wants to throw their hand in the air for that tall poppy syndrome of saying they did something special or did something above and beyond what they would have been expected to do. And, uh, and you know, I see the, the difference in the US where, you know, there's a lot of military medals given out for, for different reasons. And, you know, I wish Australia was a little bit more like the US in that regard where... Yeah, the you know, same with us. Were, with the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. People were more happy to throw their hand in the air and say, you know what, I actually did something that was that wasn't yeah. special or, or, or was good. And, and yeah, I, I deserve that medal. But, you know, Australians are like, you know what, I just did my job and just like everybody else, <laughs> and, you know, I really didn't deserve this, but they gave it to me. I mean, it's but, funny, um, you know, because I've, I've done quite a lot of battlefield tours and, um, and especially across Europe. And I was always amazed to see, and it was really nice. You'd go to the Menning Gate and all these different places. And um, I'd always go and sort of pay respects to the to all of those sorts of um, all of those countries that fought there. It's, it's quite amazing. And then also to add to that, when I was in Baghdad, we'd go to a cemetery there, and there'd be a, there were a lot of Australians there too. Right. So it's, it yeah. was quite interesting to see. You, know, you just think in the in the middle of nowhere, you've got these um, like a Commonwealth gravesite. It was incredible. Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting the Australian history of warfare. Um, Australia committed to a lot of the wars before U.S. forces had committed, particularly yeah. World War One and Two. Um, you know, we were pretty much everywhere as that sort of silent partner that no one necessarily yeah. knows about. And, and it's amazing how many people have asked me, it's like, wait, Australia was in Vietnam? And yeah, no, wait, and that was a big one Australia for Australia, Australia actually, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like in our backyard. No, that was a big, um, I remember, well, it was one of the ones, I suppose, we weren't, I think one of the only ones we weren't involved in, actually. But it was, um, well, and that was obviously a brutal, a brutal time, wasn't it? Well, the interesting part about my family lineage and, and warfare, my father served in World War II in the Navy, and my father served two tours of Vietnam in the Army. And then mm. I served uh, in East Timor, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and pretty much all of the major conflicts that, that Australia's been in, our family's been in as well, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So you are the Anzacs through and through there. That's right. Anzac Day. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's right. Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But so tell you, and so then, so we got to the part where you were leaving. So then, then what happened then? What did you go into? Yeah, I ended up uh, pulling the pin, getting out of the unit, and um, I followed uh, followed a passion, I guess, of, of wanting to go to the US. Um, it actually had been an interest of mine since since childhood. I thought. I think my mum reminded me the other day. She said, "I remember when you were a young fella, and uh, you said you always wanted to live in the US. And here I am living in the United States." So. Um, I ended up over here in, in 2006 and started going through the immigration system, um, which I pretty much know like the back of my hand now how to you know, become a U.S. citizen, and I became a U.S. citizen uh, last last year before, uh, which was really uh, quite a thing. Um, but uh, how does that work? Over. What do you, do you do? You go in and do you sort of? I don't know how that works. Do you do you have to go in sort of um, like a test to something? What does is there a so, ceremony yeah. and things like that? Yeah, so just the, uh, the, the, the the tips of the waves here on, on the U.S. immigration system, you need a petitioner to come into the country, uh, either a visa or a petitioner, and that could be your wife. You, know, you marry a U.S. citizen, uh, which I ended up doing. I married an, an American bird. Um, 
she was Bird. my petitioner to, to establish my green card and residency and um, then, you know, an expedited work ticket, uh, parole, early parole. I could end up leaving the country if I needed to. But, you know, there's a lot of checks and balances there within that, that system of, you know, it, it's pretty strict of what you can and can't do as, as an immigrant. Um, and then, you know, once uh, once you get well, in fact, after 9-11, they kind of changed the rules a little bit where yeah. uh, it was a two-year two temporary residency as a green card holder, and then you would apply for a permanent residency or legal permanent residency, which was a 10-year green card. So you would submit a, an I-751 form, which is quite expensive to do so, and that would remove the restrictions off your green card and give you long-term permanent residency of 10 years. And then it would be an expectation that within that 10 years that you would become a U.S. citizen, which I did. Um, and swore in, swore in uh, my oath in Williamsburg in Virginia, which was pretty cool. Oh, wow. And do you, like, uh, you get on one knee and they take out a sword? <laughs> yeah, I think that's called knighthood. That happens in the UK. <laughs> it's John so full of history. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, they did, a, they did quite, you know, did Williamsburg, historical Williamsburg, and they did a you know, re- reenactment and, uh, and readings from the colonial times and, you know, they brought in a, uh, a, a, a you know a, a band and you know procession all that kind of stuff and it was extremely well done and uh, quite a moving and touching sort of sort of thing to go through. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm US citizen now. You can't get rid of me. Yeah. <laughs> Here to stay. So so during that period of time uh, where you were in the immigration process, you were working as well. Yes. Uh, so what I did um, when I when I first got here, I was in Indiana and uh, did a little bit of time there, and ended up screening through the Old Boy Network. It was it was quite an interesting bit of a uh, bit of a process. Uh, when I was in Indiana, um, a friend of mine from the unit, my, my former team commander, was on the pep billet over at Naval Special Warfare in Virginia Beach, and he was over with a, a task group uh, doing a task group spin up out at Fort Knox in Kentucky and ended up getting a hold of me and asked me to come down and, and help support that activity. Uh, and then you know, he'd been over to the SBS exchange over in the UK, and it turns out that an S- one of the former SBS uh, sergeant majors was out of the unit and in the United States and was actually the director of training at Blackwater at the time. And uh, they kind of knew each other, and he put in a good word for me and asked me to go in there and screen to, to get a position at Blackwater. So I gave him a call, and uh, they, they flew me out, basically, and uh, went down, did my shooting test interview, and, and got a job at, at Blackwater in Moyoc, and that's where I ended up transitioning across to Virginia Beach, and I've been pretty much here ever since. Wow. Um, and I've worked at Blackwater as a pretty much a military special operations instructor out there for about five years. So you, you got, I mean, that's really lucky, isn't it? You know, if you think about the like jobs that are going, that's probably for for someone like you, that's a really a really cool transition. As in, you've just it, it was it really yeah. I tell you what it really was. That was Blackwater's heyday, and um, yeah. look, I'm, I'm certainly not here to talk about uh, a political agenda or anything like that with regards to you know, Blackwater and its, and, its, and its business or anything like that, but you know, love Blackwater or hate Blackwater, they provided an unbelievable service to the U.S. government. Um, they, uh, it, it was, you know, to, to be part of that network at that time was just simply amazing, to, just to sort of be there and sort of behold it. Um, you know, being being part of the instructional cadre down there, we had limitless amounts of ammunition. We could train, um, get on the radio, and ask for thousands of rounds of ammo and, and shoot and, and sort of perfect our shooting skills. We had access to aircraft with a there was a heavy, medium, or light rotary wing assets from Little Birds to 412s and 214s. It was 
amazing. We could fast rope. We could use explosives to do live fire explosive uh, or CQB, live, live fire CQB with hostage rescue. All of these things that we set up for uh, Eric Prince and his dignitaries as full mission profiles was pretty much my responsibility there at that time to set them up. So I just I just do it as a training evolution for the for the, the cadre down there, and I'd pretty much bring all assets that we possibly had at Blackwater at the time, from canine to the uh, MRAP program to the you know, Blackwater Air at the time, um, and pretty much roll everything in there. We had snipers, we had uh, MRAPs with uh, 240s and 249s, we had fast roping from little birds, explosive breaching, live fire, uh, hostage rescue with live people on the inside of the shoot houses, and it was just stuff that I don't think has been done uh, before at the, that sort of commercial level. And it was quite yeah, amazing. And, and that's the thing, if it, that private sector, and and like you say, in those, in those early days, you know, that, that was actually the people that were, they were getting were so, such good quality. You know, I don't think it was until much later, until, you know, things went crazy and they needed, you know, more bums on seats, if you like, that things started to go a little bit haywire. But having said that, the, the sort of, the core nucleus of people that they were using were just basically transitioning from someone like you t- into that role. So, it, it, and it, that's why it worked so well. Yeah, look, they have everything's very compartmented, and again, not to divulge Blackwater secrets either, yeah. but um, you know, there's a lot of uh, things that Blackwater do that people don't know about. Yeah, um, there's a lot of things that were happening down there that uh, people, you know, were, were either privy to or weren't privy to. Uh, there was an, a lot of there were a lot of exceptional people and contractors that were part of some of the different programs, and uh, and I was just lucky enough to be sort of there yeah. at the right time and, and sort of be part of it. But yeah, there was a lot of very skilled people and and a lot of good things that were happening down there. Yeah, John? so yeah, so you you wrapped up your time at Blackwater and then you transitioned into what you're doing now. Yeah, so uh, you know again. The, the whole Blackwater thing, you know, the, the business had changed, uh, names and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, I, I sort of had these ambitions of, of starting my own business anyway. So uh, I, I ended up uh, cutting ties with, uh, with with Academy about 2010 and starting Redback One, which is our training company uh, right around that time. And, you know, it was it was, uh, it was hard, hard knocks, that's for sure. We, uh, we just bought a house. My wife and I had just bought a house. Uh, she was pregnant with our first baby. I had no job and decided to start a business. Um, See that so that had, oh, that couldn't have happened. That always happens at a time like that, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, per- it's perfect. Yeah. It's like a selection, a selection story. It's, it's like <laughs> you know, real life selection. How yeah. to make enough money to, to make ends meet right now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, look, I was lucky enough to have um, a decent reputation and name within the training industry. Uh, we ended up going out under the Grey Group banner, um, which uh, we, which we. We were under uh, Grey Group's name for, uh, I think, a year or two before we... Oh, right, the Grey, Grey Group training. Yep. Yeah, I remember them. Yep. They were, and, they were uh, really highly thought of, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, we, we started with them, and it was a bit of a blessing in disguise because it was pretty easy. They were a talent agency for guys like me that booked our, you know, our shooting our courses, excuse me, our flights, everything, our ammo, host, students, everything was provided for, essentially, and we just roll up and teach the course. Um and then, uh, you know, we, we ended up splitting ties with them and uh, doing everything autonomously where we started booking our own training and venues and started our own open enrollment training program, which then soon led to our law enforcement training program and then on to our military training program. 
So now we've we've uh, been in business for about seven years, and uh, you know very well respected within the training community. Uh, our our core businesses essentially is combat shooting, um, and and the tactic side of, of what we do is uh, CQB and hostage rescue. Uh, we have night vision operations. We've just moved into uh, VBSS and maritime counterterrorism. Uh, our force protection packages include law enforcement, uh, uh, counter ambush uh, training with their with their vehicles, as well as uh, either high or low visibility uh, mobile force protection on the military side, where we have certain contracts with different military units. Um, and then the, our latest thing that we're getting into is human performance, um, where we've partnered with a company actually in the UK, uh, which is uh, Move Three. Uh, human performance solutions, and a friend of mine, Dan Cleal, uh, who is sort of leading up the science side of our human performance training. I head up the tactical side, he heads up the science side, and uh, together with some of the latest technology in neuroscience, we've got a uh, pretty interesting course, which really uh, is, is sort of movement-based, movement essentially, and it, it goes into... Uh, uh, active stability, dynamic flexibility, there's uh, movement principles, biomechanical uh, movement principles, strategies for body conditioning, uh, movement patterns. Uh, you know, we, we go into a, a fair bit about how the body needs to move and how robust and resilient it needs to be in order to perform better in combat. So, Well, but that, uh, is that quite an interesting... Um, it, I bet that's quite an interesting... Amazing. Yeah, I, I tell you what, it's um, it's interesting to see, you know, when me and Dan get together, he attacks it from the science side, and I attack it from the tactics and training side. Uh, we both have a lot of learning that that is sort of you know by osmosis about you know just hanging around each other. So the more he's around me, I learn more science, and the more he's yeah. around me, he learns more tactics and shooting. But, but even um, there's there's like small things that you potentially could discover, you know, about, and I don't, I don't even know what they are, but I'm just saying if you could like even discover one thing that makes the difference between I don't know a split second that's actually really um, well, we could be really effective. That. See that could we be amazing. That's yeah. Yeah, we're actually working with a US-based company right now, uh, yeah. which is providing uh, that type of performance enhancement, um, which I can't really divulge right now. No, uh, of course, because it still uh, still hasn't been announced. Um, but you know, we are working on uh, human performance at the elite level. And working with some of the best companies to deliver, you know, a, an extremely high-level uh, program in human performance and, and combat shooting. So, and that's. Do you know what the best thing, like, about the whole sort of conversation is that you, rather than just get out and go into one sort of flat thing, you've. It's, it's quite nice to hear how you've progressed and and taken. So, from those very early days of when you were first a commander, you've you've just you, you keep going, and that's actually quite refreshing to hear. Yeah, well, I, I think it. it, it, it you know, it's, it's, it's got to be part of who we are is to progress. You can't be stagnant yeah. and you can't regress. You know what I mean? You've always got to be pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable and what normal is. And, um, you know, we always... It's just nice you're it. taking your skills with you. It's not... And that's what I quite like is that normally people just, they go off and do something different, but you, you've actually just taken the skills and just... And, you know, that's that's a good and thing. And enhance them. That's, yeah. That's exactly right. So, you know, having a... Our methodology in combat shooting has been accepted by the Australian Combined Arms Training Centre right now. They're actually using Redback methodology to train new soldiers going through the pipeline in the Australian infantry, which is pretty. And how, how good does that feel? You know that you because again, it's then giving back to where you first started. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even the, the time that I went back there to the Special Forces Training Centre and was able to conduct a uh, combat shooting course for all elements of Australia SOCOM was another sort of proud moment for me that yeah, I was able sure. to sort of give that back as well. Yeah, well, oh, yeah, it's, is- it's interesting, the whole progress, like the concept of continuing the progress, because, you know, as human beings, you can't, like perfect doesn't exist, right? But a, a level down from that would be to strive for perfection and to strive to progress always, you know? And I think um, that's probably the next best thing is to con- to constantly improve yourself and improve your position and your standing and that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, look, we see it all the time. But the, the training industry that we're in right now is extremely flooded. The market is flooded. There's a lot of guys that have got a lot of recent experience getting out of the military and different special operations communities, Army, Navy, etc. Right. And uh, coming, coming onto the scene with recent experience. You know, I've been out of the game for a little while, but uh, we've got all of our cadre are all uh, Tier 1 Special Missions Unit guys uh, with a lot of recent experience, uh, mostly on the Navy side. And, um, you know, and for me, having a good reach back to my former unit and the special operations community in Australia and also the US now, it's actually provided me with the ability to remain current in a lot of the things that, you know, are happening in special operations. So we can tailor our training and because we work directly with some of these units, you know, we, we know what their needs are and we can stylize our training and also our personal training we can take that to the next level too because we understand what the customer needs and wants going forward into the future. And do you offer courses for civilians as, as well as the law enforcement and military? Yeah, we do. And we've conducted a couple. We used to, you know, our, our, our training uh, calendar used to be full of commercial or civilian open enrollment training. And then, you know, when law enforcement started cottoning on to the fact that we were able to run CQB courses, hostage rescue, night vision, all the other things that I just mentioned, you know, they started wanting that and, you know, the phone started ringing more frequently. And then uh, we kind of tripped over and, and fell over a military contract and, and we've, we've been able to you know, secure that contract ongoing and, uh, and that sort of led us down the military sort of contracting route, which, which was a, a, an interesting sort of learning experience for us. Um, but, you know, we've, we've been lucky enough to have a lot of work come our way from military and law enforcement, which has sort of reversed the table a little bit where we're concentrating a lot on military and law enforcement, but then uh, we don't want to have... You know, the, the people that, that built our reputation are the commercial shooters. The guys that get on forums and blogs and this and that are, are the guys that, uh, that, are, that are our commercial shooters because military guys don't do that for the most part and law enforcement guys don't do it. So we always owe it back to our uh, open enrollment students that actually built our reputation that we're going to give back to them and continue to run open enrollment training even though we've got a fair bit of other work going on. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome stuff, man. And so kind of dialing back, I had a question when you were mentioning, when you were talking about your time in Afghanistan right after the towers fell, um, kind of as a, a medical question, obviously nowadays TCCC is, is um, you know, very much out there and people, are, civilians are being taught and even some of the, you know, the paramedics and first responders are now uh, using some of those guiding principles, is that something that was uh, used during those days? So it wasn't, you know. So, so TCCC was was for the most part established here in the US, and um, you know through the, again Naval Special Warfare Community and, and Army Special Operations Community, etc. You know, were, were the real big proponents of TCCC, and uh, and it started to slowly you know go across the waters into the different units. And you know, when I was a medic going through our medical training, which was the patrol medic course. You know, we did uh, like an accelerated 18 Delta program and, um, you know, everything from 
uh, battlefield trauma and you know, stabilizing casualties with amputated legs, you know, uh, uh, hemostatic agents, tourniquets, uh, penetrating chest injuries, chest seals, this, that, and the other, nasopharyngeals, all the way through to you know, prolonged sort of field care where you know, we're treating casualties for, for long periods in, in the field nasogastric tubes and all this other stuff, you know, a lot of meds that we take into the field. Um, you know, because an SAS patrol stays, uh, you know, potentially in the field for long periods. Um, you know, our longest patrol, some of our patrols in, in Afghanistan and Iraq were like a month um, on vehicle patrols. And foot patrols could be, you know, weeks at a time. So treating a, treating a, a non-battle casualty, someone who's, who's sick or wounded or anything like that, you know, in those times, you know, we've, we've got to be prepared for that. But TCCC wasn't necessarily around at the time, although a lot of the principles, and, and me now as a TCCC instructor, um, the principles of TCCC, you know, obviously stem from battlefield trauma, and we, we, we definitely understood the role of the combat medic, and, and look, every, everybody should have the ability to save a life on the battlefield, and we would always cross-train and make sure everybody knew how to save a life. Everybody knew how to, you know, use hemostatic agents. Everybody knew how to use a tourniquet. We'd always reverse the ABCs, you know, the primary survey where you check in airway, breathing, circulation. You know, we'd always do the primary survey looking for, uh, you know, bleeders first to make sure we can keep the blood on the inside, putting tourniquets on, then coming back to the chest, assessing the chest, and then back up to airway. So we were always doing it in the reverse order, same as TCCC, but it just was not called TCCC. Right. Um, but I think TCCC has refined... Uh, combat medicine for the average operator, not the not the combat medic, but it's certainly refined it. You know, it's a 16 hour program to go through essentially right now with some you know theory and skills training, and then pretty much everyone can save a, a, a preventable death on the battlefield for the most part. Right, and and Chantel, did is that something that you guys were learning early on, or was that something that happened uh, later on in your career? Yeah, I think it was it was later too. I mean, we again just to go back to the the sort of non battlefield injuries. They were I was just find they were normally more problematic because if you are if you are out for quite a prolonged period of time and people are sick, that can kind of really take its toll on a section platoon team. You know, whatever sort of um, unit configuration you're talking about. But then T Triple C for me was almost. Um, it was the the first and the, probably the best time actually that I'd really got into the scene control of things. So I always um, like like you say medically, you know, we weren't really it wasn't taught that way, but it was always you kind of knew it was the same system but just taught slightly differently. And then it was more about for me was the the combat side, so just learning, you know, what comes first and all of that, and then, and then sort of putting it together when you're in a lead medic for a sort of company group that you have to make sure that your decisions and are for the good of everyone and not just the casualty because you know but by and large I think medics historically would just be running around that, that they're just the medic but you you had to think a bit more when it came to TCCC and like, and like you said it's it's brought us on leaps and bounds and it's um all I can say is that I suppose if for the last sort of, I don't know, 15, 20 years of war has been worth anything, it's been worth what we've learned in tactics and medicine, you know, and, that, and yeah. then what we can then teach our civilian sort of counterparts. No. That's exactly right. And, you know, uh, we, we used to run quite a few medical courses. Um, we were teamed with uh, uh, another company running TCCC and, and, and so on. And, you know, it was, uh, it, was, it was always good. I actually gave a, a lecture up in New York, uh, which was a continuing education lecture up there and you know we had uh, uh doctors and pjs and, and so on up there and 
you know, I actually gave a brief on uh, being a medic over in Afghanistan, which was quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it's always good to hear, you know, some of the, especially working around the PJs and you know, the Air Force assets and stuff like that about, you know, they're essentially the leading guys in combat medicine. And, uh, and you know, some of the, the things that they're doing now is, is revolutionary compared to even 10 years ago. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And it makes you have to think, oh, maybe I'll have to get my head back in the book. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you can never, I always think, though, like I know that there's, I mean, there's crazy stuff. Going on. I, I'd, I'd seen um, when I was um, just about to leave Baghdad about the, the, the abdominal, uh, the oh sorry, the aortic tourniquet, the thing that goes around the, the stomach. But right. I still I still believe to this day that if you do the basics well, generally you can kind of make those things, um, I don't know, you can you can make things happen, you know, just doing sort of basic things really well. And then those those sort of adjuncts are always, they're just really helpful for when the basics don't work, you know? Yeah, well, look, you can go through all of the, the moulage training and yeah. scenario training and everything else that you want to go through. And then you know what it looks like on the battlefield? Something that you've never trained on before. <laughs> and, and you're like, I didn't even do a scenario like this. You know, and, and it just looks a little bit different. So, yeah. you know, the, the, the more realistic I think that you can make some of the, the medical scenarios uh, and the moulage and the kits and, you know, the, the mannequins that are coming out, the better. Yeah, and we, and we used to do that quite a lot. You know, before my last tour, we used to do we used to get to a point where you'd, it would be a good way to decide who was basically suited to go out with um, the infantry and who, who who kind of wasn't. And that's no bad thing. You know, if you, if you can't sort of operate under sort of battle simulation and, and medical um, simulation, then generally there's there's just the, – every, everyone has their, their sort of part, you know, in the role, you know. So it's, the, you may be the, the person that's working in the hospital. You may be the person that's linked to that, you know. So it's all – it's all relevant, all, all relative to what's happening, isn't it? No, that's right. Oh, look, it was good for me. Um, we, uh, as Redback One, we we offer some you know niche service as well on the, as well on the security side, and uh, we just executed a a mission out in uh, Haiti a couple of weeks ago where we supported uh, a charity event, um, and I provided uh, we provided security services as well as medical services out there. So it was a good chance for me to re up my skills on the operational side to provide you know that uh, sort of ongoing uh, medical support to a, an endurance event, as well as you know being able to establish IV access and fluid resuscitation, yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, and is that something? Will you will um, will the company then sort of go potentially if it if it obviously if it comes up go into um, looking at training opportunities overseas or? Yeah, we've done. We've already executed quite a few training uh, training courses overseas uh, in Europe and Australia, as I mentioned. Yeah, um, we'd like to do some stuff in the UK. Uh, and also, we've done a couple of things in Canada, but um, yeah, we've got we've got a pretty good following globally, and uh, mm-hmm. you know our, our social media outlets uh, tell us that you know where we have yeah. guys in Poland that are interested in getting us across Germany, France, Italy, uh, the Netherlands. We've already executed a, a course for the, the FBI equivalent over there in the Netherlands. Um, you know, our guys over in the UK are working with US, uh, sorry, UK Special Forces guys. So we, we'd like to do more uh, globally. Yeah. We do have a lot of work, even domestically, to take care of also. So, you know, no, it's good. Let's hope it just keeps growing. Yeah. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we've, got a, we've got a couple of good guys working for us now. We've been able to expand a bit. You know, our, our, our workload is increasing, uh, which means my office work is getting uh, more and more. Um, you know, so I, I sort of dual, dual role as you know, the lead sort of firearms and tactics instructor. So I'm out in the field. 
training and, and running all the courses and having AIs out there with me as well as you know, providing um, administrative support as well to some of the contracts we have and you know, writing training proposals and getting quotes out and stuff like that. But we're on the verge of expanding our office staff to take care of a lot of that work. So do you, just do us one favour then. So when, you go, when you're on the cusp then of, of, of either make or break, just make sure you get pregnant again. Yeah, I know, right? That's the <laughs> just just add a little bit more pressure to yourselves. <laughs> you know, it's, it's always a case of, uh, you know, SAS guys being comfortable in chaos. So um, a, a friend of mine who, uh, who was dealing with some PTSD issues, uh, a US friend of mine, um, he actually like reverse engineers that and, and he, re- he reckons it's actually lack of stress disorder, not um, you know, post-traumatic stress. Because yeah, that's not, that's not a bad point, you know. Because you yeah. go from such a high octane um, yeah. environment to nothing, that can actually be quite demoralising. Yeah, exactly. So it's always a, a battle of you know, creating that chaos that we're that we're you know, we're all comfortable in being in, and then yeah. we're all looking for that excitable. You know, that's why we all uh, marry women that are that are. Um, Ooh, you know, we're nuts. We're all nuts. Yeah, we're all crazy. <laughs> Slightly crazy. Slightly crazy, but moldable and um, you know, trainable. And you say we're tra- trainable. You say we're trainable. Yep. <laughs> and then, at yep. worst case scenario, you you know you're gonna I hear you're gonna get a box set of is it Kath and Kim? You can uh, check that on. <laughs> I do. I do miss. Australia. You knew yeah, I was gonna bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Robbins, classic. <laughs> no, it's always it's always good sort of getting a dose of a, of, a, of Australia. Uh, you know, when I went back briefly for land forces, hanging out with all the boys and, and sort of re-upping my sort of Australianisms is, is always refreshing. What was the, the one thing that I was used to crack me up? I think it's still on my Facebook, actually. Is that, um, is it Chopper, the, the guy who says, um, harden the fuck up? That, Chopper, <laughs> Chopper Reed, one of the most notorious <laughs> underworld thugs ever in Australia. But he's history. funny, you know, <laughs> just mm-hmm. sort of, yeah. Well, it's funny, yeah. Yeah. yeah Chopper he's... from the inside was... Uh, you know, Eric Banner played Chopper, obviously, and um, yeah. you know, that was in my town. I actually uh, lived in St Kilda for a period of time there, which is you know, where he used to you know, do a lot of his work. Um, yeah. Well, that's the yeah. thing with Australia is that people, they don't realise, like um, when I've spoken to sort of family members about it, how bad you know, the bikey gangs and stuff were getting out there. People were getting a little bit out of control, weren't they? You know, the... Yep. Yeah. You know, just... it's... Um, look, it, this is... We'll probably lead on to a gun debate shortly, but um, <laughs> you know, Australia uh, never really grew up like America in, in terms of having you know a Second Amendment and, and having the free access to guns and stuff like that. But you're all of the bad guys, just like the bad yeah. guys in America, always have guns. And whether it's bikey gangs or whether it's you know uh, you know professional criminals or whatnot, you know street thugs or whatnot, they're always going to get access to, to weapons. And I think one of the biggest shootouts in uh, in Australian history was with the the, the two bikey gangs out there. I think it was uh, Banditos and Comancheros. Yeah. And um, it was like a big street battle where they were killing each other. But uh, you know, once once the gun ban uh, took place, the gun buyback and, uh, and and whatnot, you know, they Australia thought that was the, the best thing to happen to Australia by taking away the guns and um, you know, preventing Australian citizens from being able to protect themselves. Where you know, thugs and and criminals still have access to weapons and guns and and the, and the Australian citizens don't. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's very much like that, isn't it? Because I think Australia takes its, um, for, like, culturally, um, quite similar to the US in that way. You know, they, well, they, you like, know, they like to shoot, you know, they do all that sort of stuff. Because it's a, a massive expanse of land, you know, you've got... 
I couldn't yeah, imagine true. little I mean, sort of um, ranges in the UK. Could you imagine that sort of how that well, would turn so out? Yeah. <laughs> but no. over in the US, like you know, each state you know different has different gun laws. But in Australia, it's just like nationwide, no guns, right? Yeah. No, that's right. You know, um, you do have different state uh, legislations and laws, and the way you know each state conducts its own business here in, in America, and you know, and you know, you've got counties and cities and so on, which have their different sort of municipal police and, and law enforcement agencies. Australia has a state police uh, force and a federal police force, so the entire state has one police force. Um, right. You know, and gun laws are a state, and you know, the, the federal laws as it's applicable, but um, it is very different. And there's unfortunately the uh, and again, I'd hate to sort of draw this into a political discussion, but oh, you know the, politics, um, <laughs> the the obviously the left the left aligns itself well with Australia and uses the gun control um, of Australia as the shining light in in gun control across the world, and you know has has sort of had that high on their agenda um, to try and affect you know the Second Amendment rights of U.S. citizens and and uh, and how they can start to control the people by taking away the guns and so on and so forth, but. Um, you know, people people think that Australia and America are very similar, but they're not. Australia is nothing like America. Uh, yeah, we got McDonald's and you know Burger King and stuff <laughs> like that, but you know it's extremely different. Um, and you know, it'd, it'd, what would be nice is if you know Americans did you know more research into Australian history and how it grew up as opposed to you know U.S. history. U.S. history is, is full of fighting and, and warfare and standing up for your own rights, where Australia never did that. You know, uh, America fought for its uh, fought for its freedom against the UK. You know the Revolutionary War was yeah. put up and said no more. We aren't going to take that. Well, that, and that's and, the uh, thing they have been fighting for, and and that is kind of how you. I I couldn't. You know. Do you know what I think? Taking guns away from Americans is it would probably be as weird as giving them to the UK. Do you know? That's how weird it would be. You know, because it's yeah. that's how. Yeah, it would just. It's not. It's not going to work. You know, it wouldn't no, work it's, to them. You know, it's 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 the nickel and dime scheme that um, that the, that the government would would wanted to achieve, which was you know, yeah. if we can't take the guns away, we're going to take the ammunition away, and if we can't take the ammunition yeah. away, like in California, we're going to take the, the the features on a weapon that you know you can't have anymore. We're not saying you can't have a black rifle or an AR-15. We're just saying you can't have a bullet button anymore, yeah. which means you can't have an AR-15. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, we're gonna we're gonna make these crazy laws to say what you can't have. Uh, but we're not saying you can't have a gun. We're just saying what you can't have on it. Um, or what now? You know, you buy more more than a thousand rounds, and you go onto a watch list. You know what I mean? It's like, well, we we expect our students to turn up with over a thousand rounds on a training course. Is that, does that mean everyone's going to be on a watch list because they're wanting to train and better their skill set? No. Right. So yes. um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. You know, the, the gun control in Australia never actually worked. Um, I spoke to a police officer back there, going back a, a few months ago now, and he said it's amazing how many weapons are being pulled out of cars. Um, you know, more so now than ever, handguns, first-time offenders with with handguns in the cars, oh, young wow. kids. Um, you know, just just things that you never hear about at the because obviously the the news channels in Australia are extremely left-wing and very aligned with left-wing politics in America. And when you go, if you live in America for a while and, and, you know, and you sway one way left or right and you sort of, you know, you're there, uh, you're either Republican or you're Democrat, whatever, you go back to Australia and all you hear is anti-Republican talk on the radio and TV. Everything is very left-wing sort of Democrat politics. You know, that socialism, Bernie Sanders stuff and whatever else yeah. is obviously extremely, you know, well, well cemented in Australia right. and, uh, you know, and, and, and pitches well to millennials, unfortunately. 
uh, that have never done a hard day's work in their bloody life. They don't know what a hard day's work is because they're text messaging, text messaging each other. Um, but you know, see what you started, uh, John? Do you see what you started, John? Yeah, Bringing yeah. politics this in. This is what I want. This is what I want. Yeah. No, right. I actually got into a heated discussion with a, uh, with a British reporter when I did the, uh, the, that BBC series, Ultimate Hell Week, um, and where he was interviewing me over in, in, in France over that Bipcom and, and, it, and it quickly turned into a gun debate about American psychos and guns and all this kind of stuff, which I put it, I had to had to pump his brakes really quickly because they don't let the accent fool you, dude. I'm a very big proponent of the Second Amendment, and uh, if you haven't noticed, we run a training course that involves a lot of firearms. Yeah, it's and, a strange uh, thing to discuss with a you know like a former SF operator, isn't it? To start saying, you know, the, what a silly, a, a bit naive to sort of say that to someone like you. Well, that's right, Bill. Look, I'll tell, tell you where the naivety comes from is that they haven't done their homework in American history. And we, yeah. look, at it, um, we look at it like this. You know, Australia was granted sovereignty by, uh, by England by being yeah. good blokes. You guys are good blokes. We're just going to grant you sovereignty. You never fought for independence against, the, against England. You were granted sovereignty by being good It was a penal colony that, that grew up as convicts. And our descendants in my family were direct descendants of the first fleet that came over. Uh-huh. And uh, and, it, and, it, and it, you know that's what it was. We never fought for independence. When you look at at uh, at, a, at Australian, you know, Australians are very humble people. You know, we always get complimented on how humble we are. You know, we're the, the good mm-hmm. Aussie battler. We don't ask for anything more, and we don't ask for anything more because of that tall poppy syndrome, which is sort of a legacy of Australian culture. That you know, if you put your hand up and ask for something, be prepared for you to be shot down, saying, well, why do you want anything extra? You know, you don't deserve anything extra, and it's that, that Aussie battler, do more with less kind of mentality, which is cool, but it's not like American uh, culture. American culture is stand up for your rights, and if you don't like something, you're going to tell somebody that you don't like it, and, uh, and it's two very different, different situations and cultures. America fought for its independence against England. America fought a civil war against themselves because they yeah. weren't happy with how things were going with trade and, and, and jobs and employment, the North and the South. All this stuff, um, you know, the, the Star-Spangled Banner was written under gunfire. How awful yeah. is that? <laughs> you know? And we, I don't even know what the yeah. Australian National Anthem actually means. You know, I actually preferred waltzing Matilda to advance <laughs> Oh, God, I, do you know, I watched today, just to, I'm sorry to jump in, it was amazing, it was footage of soldiers and they were marching... Shit, and I need to remember, yeah, um, World War Two, and they were they were singing um, Waltz and Matilda. It was an amazing scene. Yeah, it was pretty. Cool. Yeah, and no, old Australians would prefer to see Waltzing Matilda, um, you know, as as his national anthem again. Uh, yeah, you know, because it means something Ameri- to them, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And 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 just like Star Spangled Banner means something to to America. American history means something to America. The Second Amendment means something to Americans yeah. for the most part. But. Um, but they're very different cultures and uh, two cultures that, that you know, need to be understood equally. And I think unless you, you know, me going through the U.S. immigration system, you know, allowed me to better understand American history and culture to a, to a higher degree. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, that needs to be done. I think it's important for someone like me coming in from Australia to understand Americans, the, re, the, the way that they are. Everyone globally says Americans are outspoken, obnoxious, loud, blah, 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 and all of these negative things about Americans. It's like, you know what? Welcome to America. Everyone used to say, um, you know, Yeah, John's uh, like all, that. Yeah. John's, yeah, all, I just, <laughs> all, I, I fight for anything. These, yeah, you're, you're going to tell people. You, and, and that's how we are. You know, that Americans are like that. 
you know, everyone used to complain in Australia, oh, the American movie's crazy, like all these Hollywood movies with American flags, like, hung up in here and there, and everyone's like, dude, have you ever been to America? That's yeah, how it is that's in America. Is, yeah, I, yeah I quite flag. like that. You know, when I travel to the States, it's quite, it's a nice feeling. And, you know, for the first nice. time, and although, um, like, we don't say it here, but, I've, you know, people will say, thanks for your service, and I get a bit embarrassed because I don't, it's not because I'm all coy. I just think, shit, I don't know what to say because it's just something that we don't do, and I, I think it's really, it's pretty cool. It is cool. Yeah, and, I like uh, the way they're pro-military, and, you know, and, and if that makes me, I'm, you know, that's how I feel about my military, so it's I, a good I, thing. I live in a city right here in Hampton Roads in Virginia Beach that um, you know, has the largest, sort of military presence, uh, certainly on the naval side. of. Right. I mean, we've got aircraft carriers down the road from us. Yeah, and, that's um, pretty cool. You know, it's, it's amazing. You've got jets in the air flying around. You've got helos all over the place flying around. You've got SEAL teams here. You've got all kinds of things right here in Virginia Beach. And it's like you're being at Kandahar there, just yeah, in it's, it's, it's a, it's a It is. It's a proud military <laughs> town, and, um, and it's, it's always... Good to see, you know, you, you jump on a plane somewhere and uh, the, the flight attendants and everything, they're always first to congratulate all the U.S. service members on board and all that kind of stuff. You don't get that in Australia. No, you don't get it in the U.K. either. Yeah, I mean, well, it depends on what yeah. flight you catch. You might get dragged off because someone else wants to <laughs> yeah. But um, it probably pays to wear your uniform these days on a plane. Maybe you won't get yeah. dragged off. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, and the good, do you know, the good thing about the, that sort of way you've just described is that Generally, you'll notice if something's adrift, you know, if something's not quite right because of the way, you know, when you, you live in a place like that, I think it'd be, I'd imagine it would feel like quite a relatively safe place to be. No, it is. And, uh, and you know, the, the people that we hang out with uh, are my kind of people. And, uh, you know, we always carry guns wherever we go. We're obviously well proficient at, at being able to, to carry a gun with concealed weapons permits. And you know, a lot of people don't know, but... You know, I'm a reserve police officer at the same time, and and can carry a can carry a gun wherever I go. Yeah, um, nice. But you know, we, we we feel we feel pretty safe. Obviously, we're a pretty big target at the same time, potentially for for the enemy. Uh, so we yeah. always remain vigilant. You know, we're always stand ready, and we've all got a plan to you know make things happen if that time comes. Yeah, no, but you know cool. what they they. You know, they wouldn't go to, a, I mean, you know, let me not say what they wouldn't. wouldn't John. Yeah. <laughs> but I think for the most part, like, attacks happen in places where, you know, what or what they would call, like, a soft target. You know what I mean? Like, not like, like, they'll like go up to York. a, right, yeah, they'll go up to, right, a place where people don't have weapons or whatever. Or in the in Europe and France, you know, they go to a cafe yeah. and start shooting at people. But you're not no, going to go right. to a military town filled with active duty and retired military guys and, and start shit. You know what I mean? It'd be like a scene well, from Heat, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we certainly hope not. I mean, you know, the, yeah. uh, the, the, the sort of documented lone wolf attacks and stuff like that and that have occurred, even the deliberate sort of uh, you know, terrorist attacks in, in the U.S. that have occurred in gun-free zones and even some of the active shooters. In fact, predominantly all the active shooters that have happened here have been in gun-free zones, yeah. schools, movies movie theaters, you know, um, you know anti, anti-gun sort of restaurants or anything, anything like that. You know, it's, uh, it's it, it, you know, you, you, you do have to be prepared. You do have to be vigilant. And, um, you know... It, yeah, because that, that's actually like just that the world we live time. in, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, and look what's happened in France recently. You know, yeah. you, they attack these gun-free zones because they know that they can, you know, have a uh, significant, uh, you know, psychological win you know, yeah, and, sure. and result. 
look what happened oh. in, in Texas when they tried to attack that. Uh, I think it was a free speech, uh, you know, get together, whatever it was. Yeah, you know, like they, a like they, a art a art something or whatever. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. The guys like got a, shot yeah. and killed, like <laughs> like right yeah, away. On, yeah, on the approach, they didn't even make it into the building. On the approach, they got slotted. <laughs> Yeah, and, I, uh, welcome to Texas, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I saw this guy was doing like a stand up, uh, some stand up comedy clip. I saw it online, and he was like, uh, you know, they were doing something offending, you know, some some form of Islam in Texas, like this kind of free speech thingy. And he was like, they should have known it was a setup because it's fucking Texas. And obviously, you know, right away the dudes get shot before they even, I think, could fire a shot or something like that. You know, so yeah, I'd like to read the AAR after that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, well, it's it's um, it's been really good chatting with you. No, thanks, thanks, guys, for having me on the show. It's um, it's it's great. You know, I think podcasts like this are you know a, a good way to um, uh, you know to to provide information to, to to people that wouldn't ordinarily have access to it. You know, it's a, it's a good right. um, you know, it's a good stadium. It's a good you know stage to to do that. And I think it, and it's, it helps because a lot of people that get in touch with us, they kind of it's, it's good to hear it like um, kind of unfiltered, you know, that people can come on and talk without obviously giving away secrets and stuff. But they can get actually uh, people relate to that and you know, they can they know you, it's just not waffle. You can kind of relate to what they're saying. And then also if people are, are thinking of getting out or transitioning, they they can kind of get a little bit of a steer of where to go. So that's um well, I'll tell you what, my advice for someone who's looking to get out and, and the advice that I always give to anyone who says to me, I'm looking to get out in the next 12 months, prepare, 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 prepare for life as a civilian. Yeah. And that means really consider what you're going to do when you get out. If you're not going to, or if, if you're going to stay in the same field of expertise that, you know, you, you, that you're currently in, then prepare for that. Don't wait until that last minute where you're kind of like out and then you're wondering what you're going to do, that's for sure. Make sure your veterans affairs stuff is all sorted out. Anything to do with like what happens if you get sick after being exposed to depleted uranium rounds you know, overseas and then you get sick and you haven't filled out your veterans affairs stuff. You know, making sure all of that stuff's taken care of are things that you know, junior guys when they get out just don't think of or they're like you know, hurry, hurrying to get out and, and whatever yeah. else. But that preparation of, of getting out is, is more important than actually getting out. Yeah, because it's quite, it needs to be quite systematic, doesn't it? You need to actually, and it sounds really boring, but it is. It's really important to get your affairs in order, especially medically. It's super boring because it's admin. And yeah. All no one like no one likes admin, do they? Yeah. No, that's right. That's why we need so many support staff in special operations to do all the admin for us. <laughs> it's, not, it's not true. It's semi true. Yeah. So, Getting uh, you more leg room on the flights and stuff like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, Jason, if anyone is interested in uh, checking you out and checking out your company, uh, for potentially for courses or whatever, uh, where can they go uh, to do that? Uh, sure, yep. Uh, we've got our webpage, which is uh, redback1.com, uh, all spelled out. You can use the number one. You can use O-N-E, redback1.com. Um, and we've got our social media sites. We've got a Facebook page. We've got an Instagram page. We've got a Twitter account. You know, we're, we're like fully out there in the social media side. So uh, look us up, Redback One, and looking forward to talking to you guys. And any training inquiries or anything like that, feel free to hit us up, and we'll get you squared away. Awesome. Awesome. All right, uh, Jason, thank you for coming on, man. It was, it was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, you it, Jason. John. Thanks, Chantel. Good talking to you guys. Yeah, take care. All right, you too. Bye-bye. With that, we'll close out this week's podcast. 
Check out my website at www.globalrecon.net. Be sure to sign up and subscribe to the mailing list. Um, like I've said several times in previous episodes, we are working on developing products and having different products for sale on the website in conjunction with uh, veterans, predominantly from the special operations community. Recently, uh, I had a, a for a small period of time. I had uh, some American flags made by my good friend Dan from Combat Flags uh, for sale up on my website. Uh, they went pretty quickly. Uh, we should have some more in stock in a couple of weeks, maybe two weeks or so. And uh, if you sign up for, at the mailing list, you'll get uh, you know a week's head notice on um, you know when we're going to release and that kind of thing. And uh, you can kind of get ahead of the game there. Uh, so you can also check us out on Twitter at IG Recon. I'm also on LinkedIn to search Global Recon. Uh, Chantel Taylor, the co-host of the podcast, is a former British Army combat medic. Um, she served for over 10 years, I believe it was 12 years, in the British Army, and then for close to a decade as a, a contractor in different uh, war zones across the planet. And she wrote a very good book called... Uh, Battle War and the Memoirs of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. Uh, she doesn't talk about this much, and it's not like you know she doesn't boast about it, but she's renowned as the uh, first female in British military history to k- engage and kill an enemy combatant in close quarters. And she talks about uh, that specific deployment. And, you know, it was a very good book, very interesting. She's a great writer, and I recommend all you guys check it out. Uh, you can find it anywhere books are sold. Um, I guess the easiest place to get it would be on Amazon.com. As always, I encourage you guys to subscribe, download, and share the episodes with your friends and family. And that way, we can continue to provide you with high-quality content uh, week after week. Um, We we have some good episodes lined up for you guys. we got some good people going to come on and talk about some interesting stuff. Uh, So we'll see you guys in a few days with another episode. Peace.